The Lord be with you. Let us pray. We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Eastern Rite, there's a series of prayers called the Chiron, which priest says right before Mass. Uh, and there was one that jumped out at me this morning. Uh, you're not supposed to confuse rites, by the way, but in your private prayers, you can do what you want. So that's the wonderful thing about being Orthodox. You have Eastern Rite and Western Rite. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there that you can do. Uh, so I can do these in my private prayers. Anyway, there's one that caught my attention. It was, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us for laying aside all defense we sinners offer unto thee as master this supplication, have mercy on us. When I first became Orthodox many years ago, I thought, this church says, have mercy too much. Uh, you're laughing because you probably thought the same thing I'm thinking. It's everywhere, both rights. I mean, it just, and I thought, can't they say anything else to God besides have mercy? Uh, but once in the church and began to experience the spirituality of orthodoxy and, and all of it in its understanding of reality, I began to think, you know, really, that's all there is to say. Then I started noticing in the Gospels, in most of the healing accounts, the people who cry out to Christ say, have mercy on me. So this church has preserved these things for us for a good reason. Really, the only thing we have to say is have mercy I mean, God gives us the grace to be these wonderful human beings that he meant in the beginning, and we haven't gotten there. So what else can we say but have mercy on me, a sinner? Uh, so anyway, that just jumped out at me. I thought, oh, I'm sure glad this church has saved me from this stuff. I, you know, I had to somehow figure it all out and reinvent the wheel and all that business anyway. Today, I want to... I wanna, and that's important because it, it fits into last what we talked about last week and tradition and also today, the question, the issue of, is it biblical? Uh, and this is sort of a, a, a reference to how we view scripture, but, but also to address that question. Uh, because really the question, and, and we hear that a lot in American society today among American Christians, is it biblical, whatever they're doing? Uh, and it's not a question that we ask in orthodoxy. So it's not an orthodox question. So in any case, for us, the authority is the apostolic tradition, not the Bible. Now, I don't want you to get all, you know, don't get bent out of shape. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't have value and it's not, it isn't a value to us. It is. But the apostolic authority, the proper understanding of the scriptures is the thing that we need to know. Uh, remember that the Bible, as I mentioned in a sermon some months ago, the Bible is not the Word of God. The Word of God is a person, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a big difference there. Uh, and that's what we have to get in orthodoxy. And the tradition helps us to understand and see him, and see him, and, and, and perceive him, and, and even to become into relationship with him the tradition opens our eyes and there's so much in the tradition that that helps us to see scripture and I, I look I have this the one incident I gave you is just one among many 
So many times I've thought, this church just doesn't get it. And then I'd read from the church's perspective something in the New Testament, and I'd think, write down the words and even syllables that are used and emphasized. Vistas would open up for me of reality. And that can only be preserved if, if what has been handed on to us is preserved. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So for us, the authority is the apostolic tradition of which the Bible is the main part, the major aspect. In other words, the tradition is the scriptures properly understood. And this concept was never really challenged in Christianity until the Protestant Reformation. Really wasn't challenged. Even the, even the schismatic Roman Catholic Church believed this and technically still does. Now, I want to read to you a quote. And this, this is so valuable because it's from an Anglican theologian of the 19th century. So 130, 140 years ago, more, from someone outside orthodoxy, writing about this fourth ecumenical council when there was only one church. And when they had to decide the issues of who Christ was and what we call the two natures of Christ, when this was established with clarity so we'd understand what was right thinking and what was not. And he says this about their decision, and this is so important for us. The questions the fathers at the council, the bishops who were there, considered was not what they supposed Holy Scripture might mean, nor what they from a priori arguments, preconceived notions, thought would be consistent with the mind of God, but something entirely different to wit, what they had received. See, the tradition is what we receive, passed on from the church. They understood their position to be that of witnesses, not of exegetes. That is finding the meaning in the text. Seminaries like to use the word exegesis. I had a seminary professor in the, Angle, in the Episcopal Church who used to wear a t-shirt, an Old Testament professor and also a scholar, and his, his said, exegesis saves. I thought that's pretty cool. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody got it, but anyway, he wore it. He was one of the bright lights there. Um, Anyway, they recognized but one duty resting upon them in this respect, to hand down to other faithful men that good thing the church had received according to the command of God. You see what we've been given? Some great treasure. And it's our duty to pass it on, understood, and as much as possible for each of us, and unchanged. So when the world around us doesn't like what it hears, we can't do anything about that. We must pass it on unchanged. We don't adapt to the world, and we don't let the world tell us what we believe and how we do it. In any case, the first requirement was not learning, but honesty. The question they were called upon to answer was not, what do I think probable or even certain from Holy Scripture? But what have I been taught? What has been entrusted to me to hand down to others? When the time came in the Fourth Council to examine the tome of Pope St. Leo, St. Leo was a, was a saint in the 4th, 5th century who wrote something called the tome, and he described the two natures of Christ in his language is what we use. So it said, when the time came to be question whether, when the time came to examine the tome of Pope Leo, 
The question was not whether it could be proved to the satisfaction of the assembled fathers from Holy Scripture, but whether it was the traditional faith of the church. That's the way we understand Scripture. Now, the doctrine of the Bible only comes out of the Protestant Reformation. It's called sola scriptura. Martin Luther hawked this viewpoint primarily. John Calvin did too, and most of the reformers did in some form or fashion. And that is that the Bible is the only authority needed. All you have to have is the book. Well, again, that was never heard of until 1500s, basically. Uh, and it generally emphasizes the literal interpretation of the scriptures, that it is so clear and so obvious that anybody can pick it up and understand it. Now tell me, from your experience, is that true for you? <laughs> what do you do? You come talk to us because we're clergy, and by golly, we're supposed to know these things, right? <laughs> so, so that means it's not all that clear in every way. Why do you think we have the Nicene Creed? Because it's not all that clear in every way. So we need this, the interpretation of the church. And also, it's a tendency in American Christianity to create doctrines on the basis of single verses of the Bible. So let me give you some examples. I've already mentioned this, and I'm going to have one lesson on it, on the rapture, the popular notion of the rapture. That is that Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to take the faithful out of this world. The tribulation is going to occur against the unfaithful and the godless. And then Jesus is going to come back again and get all of us and establish eternity. Three returns of Christ. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's why it's in the creed, because there was a doctrine in the early centuries called the millennium, which was sort of related to that, and rapture people like the doctrine of the millennium. So he will come again one more time, and it's it. When Jesus shows up, we better be ready, because otherwise we're in trouble. And notice how many of the prayers in the Orthodox Church also mention, you know, I, Lord, I, if I show up, you'll, my sins will belie me as not having my wedding garment on. That one really gets to me. I think, oh, yeah. Another thing I've always imagined, and I want you to remember this, is when, because we had a, an elevation recently, and you heard at elevations and ordinations, the Orthodox, the Eastern Rite says, axios. It means he is worthy. But it doesn't mean he is worthy as we think of it. It was, a, it was an acclamation given when someone successfully completed and won a race or an event, a competition. Uh, the Latin version of it is dinus est. So I'm sorry now that I didn't think about that. I would have had us yelling that when the bishop was saying it in Arabic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it. In any case... My point is that remember that on the day of judgment when we're all standing before the great throne of Christ and our sins are made manifest to all of creation. It'll be up to us to say to Christ on behalf of each and every one, axios, in that sense of he is worthy. He has completed the race and been faithful, or she, as the case may be. Anyway. There are passages of Scripture which can and are to be understood literally, but there are many others which, as you know, are understood in a different kind of way. So one of the things we need to know about Scripture is this. There are four levels of understanding. 
and this comes to us from all of the patristic writers in various forms. Sometimes you have different words that we use, so I'm using ones that come out of the Western tradition, uh, and, and, and they, there may be better terms to use than these. Uh, but I'm going to write them down for you because I want you to, uh, you'll recognize them immediately. That is, if I can get this thing off. Anyway, the first is literal. Literal interpretation. Thou shalt not kill. Does anyone need an interpreter to clarify that? Thou shalt not steal. It's pretty obvious what it means. So commandments, usually literal. We take them literally. The second one is homiletical. So that's number one. And what that means basically is moral stories that make a moral point. So the parables are homiletical forms. So you have to read the whole story to get the point. The point is hidden in there or woven into the story. Basically, much of the Bible is homiletical. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are homiletical because woven into the telling of the story of the life of Christ and of the incarnation taking place are all these moral points. And then St. John is a different form altogether. The third one is mystical. And that usually includes allegory, metaphor, typology, numerology, apocalyptic. St. John's book at the end of Revelation is apocalyptic. That fits mystical. St. John's gospel is mystical. It talks about encountering God and, and speaks in ways that we have to follow and believe in and enter into. And then lastly, there's the personal. The personal is when God speaks to each of us or any one of us individually with a Bible verse. Uh, one I like to remember is something that happened to me many years ago. This just is an example. I had, well, where is that book? When I first came into the Christian faith, I was part of a Roman Catholic community uh, that was run by ex-nuns and monks. So the community basically had a monastic flair to it. Um, and they were deep. Probably too much for me. I was at the beginning of my journey. And this, so this is my first experience of, of community, Christian community. Uh, and it was probably too much for me. And I began to think, you know, I need to go back to my roots because I need some fundamentals here. I need to learn some fundamental things. They're assuming I know certain things that I just don't know. And one day in my private prayers, I read this. For though by this, this is in Hebrews 5, 512. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. <laughs> Well, that's obviously, talking to me is not the context of what that text means, but God used that to speak to me. I read that and I thought, you're right, I've got to go back to my basic roots. And I, so I went back to the Episcopal Church, joined a parish there, and I was taught the things I needed to learn. Uh, so that's what I'm saying, that's personal, and you'll have that. That doesn't mean that then we build a doctrine based upon those personal things. I don't build a doctrine Go back to fundamentals. Leave here and go back to the fundamental places where you belong. Because Hebrews 5.12 says that. 
Um, I didn't mention you before, but the, the, the person confusing these is all being literal leads to other such things, such as numerology. You know, in Hebrew, each of the letters has a numerical value because the letters are often used as numbers. Or were in the ancient days, and probably I think still are. Uh, they're used as numbers. So each letter has a numerical value. And it's not uncommon for one to look at the numerical value of a word in Hebrew and glean a, a meaning based upon the numbers. That's part of the mystical interpretation. In the 90s, it became real popular among American Christians to do this, but they were making it up. And it's, it, it, was, it was funny because people were acting like this is a new thing that God has shown us. And it's been in the church for 2,000 years. It's called gematria. We have a Greek name for it. It's been around. We've been there. We've done that. Uh, it's interesting, fascinating, but, you know, we don't need to do it. It's just, uh, anyway. Another one was, you may remember, the Jabez prayer. That became big. You know, if you just pray the Jabez prayer, God will bless you. A truck will back up to your porch and unload all kinds of riches and wealth. And you can live, as one of my Christian friends once said, as one of the king's kids. So I don't know about you, but I believed that kind of nonsense when I was a young Christian, and God never backed up the truck to my door. Uh, and then when you look at the tradition of the church, what is emulated most? Simplicity and poverty. So, boy, that rings the contrary. Anyway, the Jabez prayer was also based upon one vague prayer found in the Old Testament. I was asked recently by someone if I'd heard that that the, 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 myth, the myth of the, 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 or the if I, had I heard that a red calf had been found in Israel. And I thought, what? What is that? I didn't even know what he was talking about. So I had to go online to look it up. And sure enough, it, it's, there was a red calf was born, a red heifer or something like this. Uh, and it's seen in pro certain Protestant circles as a sign that the Messiah is about to come. So it listed a, a biblical verse, which I decided to look up, and it was so vague, I thought, wait, this is a stretch. And what I gathered from it, it was a rabbinic interpretation of the text, where the rabbis tended to accentuate things a little bit differently than we're used to anyway. And then it was a Protestant interpretation of a rabbinic interpretation. And actually, the, the verse is so minuscule in the Bible, you could pass right on through it if you weren't looking for it. I thought, what has this got to do with any kind of prophecy to do with the Messiah? Well, these are the kinds of things that can happen. We don't keep it in, these, in this context. It could be any or all, or all of these. We need to know that. So there's a lot to learn. These are guided and directed or measured by the tradition. Again, there is no Bible-only part of the tradition. For those who want to insist on having Bible verses for everything, I say this. The great heretics and schismatics of the church all quoted scripture. Uh, sometimes so much so that you think, what's wrong with what they're saying? It's biblical. But those who went before us understood all too well what was wrong with it, and they pointed it out to us. For example, in the, second, in the first century, extending into the second and maybe into the third, was a group called adoptionists. 
That is that Jesus was just a man who, because he reached a state of holiness, was adopted by God and divinized. That's still around sometimes. Keep the word adoptionism in mind. It was based on Hebrews 5, 8 to 9, uh, which I had it marked and now I've lost the mark. It says this, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So, he became, that's what the adoptionists would argue, and the early church said, no, that's not the truth. He was always the second person of the Trinity, become incarnate, always. And if, and if he as, it was only a man who was adopted by God, then why can't you and I be adopted by God? Argumentatively, we can be, which is not what we find in our experience, nor is it the experience of the church. In the beginning of the fourth century, there was a priest from North Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius. And he was arguing that in the, third, in the second person of the Trinity, the word had a beginning. He was created. The word begotten in the New Testament, the only begotten son, suggested that there was a beginning, like all of us had a beginning. Each of us has a beginning. The same idea. So Arius could take Bible verses and use them and then say, they arrive at the conclusion that there was when he was not. So, but he had Bible verses to show for it. So if the Bible's so clear, how did he arrive at that? He was rejected. The Nicene Creed was written partly, the first part of it was written in the First Council of 325. It was written precisely to refute that notion eternally, or as Origen said, eternally begotten of the Father, which is what begotten before all ages means. <clears throat> Nestorius, the latter part of that same century, couldn't understand how the divine and the human could unite in one in the incarnation. So he took Philippians 2.5, the kenosis text that we use during Holy Week, he emptied himself and said that there's no true union between the two. Nestorius quotes a lot of scripture. And there is even some belief that maybe he repented at, his old, at the last days of his life and came back to the faith. I think it's a good possibility. But nonetheless, he, he used scripture uh, and went wrong. Now, I'm going to read you another, another quote. These, these are really good. This is, what, this is what's going on in the church. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's really good out there. There are going to be a list of names. This is from St. Uh, Vincent of Leron, who's a fifth, I think, a fifth century saint or late fourth, about this whole issue. And he's going to list a number of names. Every one of the names you're about to hear is one of those people who was either a schismatic or a heretic in the early centuries. So actually, there's a little humor going on here between the lines. If you don't know who these people are, you might not get it. Someone will perhaps ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with it the authority of the church's interpretation? For this reason, because owing to the depth of Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable as many of as, as many interpretations as there are interpreters. For Novation expounds it one way, Sibelius another, Donatus another, Arius, Eunomius, Macedonius another, Photinus, Apollinaris, Priscillian another, 
Euvenian, Pelagius, Celestius, another. Lastly, Nestorius, another, to get the humor there. <laughs> Quoting Bible verses in different ways from what the church teaches. Therefore, it is necessary, on account of so great intricacies of such various error, that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. That is what the church says. That is the tradition. The tradition tells us. Now, you know, I think I mentioned this the last time. The volumes of the fathers are immense. <laughs> you're not going to read them all. Some of you are not going to read them, period, because you just... You, it's, it's overwhelming. You, you know, at least the Bible, it's all, it's all right here. This is enough to deal with, isn't it? Uh, this is enough. Uh, so you get into the patristic writings, and you go, ah. Oh. And just when you think you've read them all by somebody, you find out someone's discovered five new books. Uh, and it's just, you know, like we have in the library over here, the, the, the Anti-Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Fathers. That is not comprehensive of all those people's writings. And that's 38 volumes this thick, 38. So when you've read all those, you've only scratched the surface. Well, how do you deal with that? Oh, come on. Did God intend it to be that complex? No, it is not that way. But for us, what we need to understand is we can trust this church to have given us this truth. So it's all summed up in the church by what the church teaches. So rather than fight it like our society does, oh, I don't buy that. By God, I know what Scripture says, and I'm, you know, I'm going to have it my way. Well, good luck. You can do that. We have free will. We can do that. But if we really want to see this avenue where we're, taint, we're pointed in the right direction, then we need to listen to what the church says. Yes, sir. Sola Scriptura. Those who really hold to that, they don't know that they're denying a reality. And that reality is this, that Satan knows and uses Scripture as much as Christians. Look at the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Satan threw and twisted Scripture at the one who breathed it. You don't think he's doing that to Christians? He knows and uses sola scriptura denies that reality. Because in knowing that reality, that moves me to cling to what Christ through his church has said that means. So that I'm safe from what Satan wants to teach me that it means. And move me away from the truth and away from God himself. Especially if we wind up creating new doctrines. Absolutely. Or creating spirituality as we want it to be. Which is really the result of Adam's sin. Yeah. yeah, that's what we have to lose is relationship with God when we don't do it his way. It's interesting, you know, Martin Luther and John, Cal and John Calvin were the founders of the Protestant Reformation, you can say. And they were the ones who expounded this whole notion of sola scriptura. And yet, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was a Luther, very erudite Lutheran scholar named Yaroslav Pelikan. Pelikan wrote a number of books, and he, if you want, really want to understand a Protestant's view of the Roman Catholic Church, a healthy view, you need to read Pelikan in those days. In his last years, Pelikan became Orthodox, and he died in the Orthodox Church. A renowned scholar, I mean, he was, he was a big one to come home. Uh, 
in any case, in one of his books, before he converted, he, he pointed out that both John Calvin and Martin Luther had to leave the Nicene Creed in place because they felt it was necessary in their worship, it was necessary to understanding the truths of Scripture. Now, if that's true, and it is, well then, that shows the tradition, they value something else besides the simple interpretation of Scripture. So by their very actions, they are con contradicting the notion of sola scriptura. Here's another one. Luther also had, if you've ever read Luther's works, he had a whole number of commentaries. John Calvin wrote his institutes include a lot of commentary uh, information. If a commentary is necessary, why is a commentary necessary? Because it's so hard to understand that you and I can't understand it. So what, what does the commentary do? It tells us how to understand it. That's what the church does. That's what the tradition does. Except our tradition was not invented 500 years ago or this last 40 years, but 2,000 years ago, even older, if you consider its Jewish antecedents, even older. We want to be a part of that. So in answer to the question for the world, uh, is it biblical? Yeah, <laughs> just not in the way that you think. And then for ourselves, we don't even ask that question. We've got to get this in our minds. We don't even ask that question. We ask, is it apostolic? You know, I, I had to, this is sort of an aside, but, but it, relate, it related to that last point. Years ago, I, I met a Roman Catholic woman and she found out I was an Orthodox priest, and we had a slight chat, and she said, she posed this question, I'd never even thought about it, but it's very profound. She said, what is the apostolic origin of your orders? And I thought immediately, we come out of the Patriarchate of Antioch, St. Peter. He was, patriarch, he was Bishop of Antioch before he was Bishop of Rome. So I said, Petrine. She said, good. <laughs> that was it. It's all she needed to know. And you know, what, made, what, what was useful to me was I'd never really thought about it like that. But in the early church, at least for early, I say early church, maybe in the 6th to ninth centuries, churches around the world began to try, to try to show where the apostles, an apostle had come to their churches and converted them. So that's where we have stories like St. Andrew went to uh, England or St. James the Less went to Spain Historical research since refute some of those notions, but still it was because they wanted to show apostolic order. And of course, apostolic order, it doesn't come through the apostles necessarily. It comes through the church holding the truth of the church, of the faith. In any case, so we don't ask that question. We ask, is it apostolic? This is apostolic. This, has been, this version has been gleaned by people who have gone before us and know more than we do. So they weeded it out. So that's why we have to stay with certain, certain translations to make sure that we have something that is right and that gives us that truth properly understood. Excuse me. So we recognize, we have to understand this, that the greatest heresies of history quoted Bible verses and texts, and the devil did too, you're right. That's a great point. We have a different question. The question which has always been asked by Christians and even those outside the church have seen this. Anyway, 
The next time, we're going to look at, ironically, Mariology, but the biblical basis of Mariology. So that's what I'm asking. We don't even ask that question. Then I'm going to show you how it's biblical because that's the resistance to Mariology, which is ironic. The resistance to Mariology is that it's supposedly that it's contrary to the faith, and yet it is biblical for those who are arguing a biblical position. And I'll show you that next time. Questions? Yes, sir. St. Vincent Laurent, uh, a commonatory. I think it's the only piece of work he's done. Yeah. Uh, and it's chapter 2, paragraph 5. Well worth reading. That, that work is well worth reading. Yes, sir. I know. <laughs> okay. So, should, just piggybacking off what you said with Hebrews, like going to the milk, ought I look at getting more of the tradition, the teaching of the, the church as the tradition, as I, before I really keep reading the Bible, in a sense that, of, you know, my background, I, I keep, I have to, like, go for the mystical, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Uh, St. Augustine said that there are three ways to approach Scripture. And, and notice that this is an aside here before I get to St. Augustine, what he said. But in the, in the church, it, part of the spiritual discipline, the, the, the steps that we take in, in, in forming a spiritual discipline, one of them includes regular reading of Scripture. That's why we have the lectionary. Regular reading. We have to be exposed to what's in here. It will form and shape us even when we think we don't understand it. I, I love it. I'm rereading uh, Paniotis and Ellis' book's book, Deification in Christ. And I read it last time about 10 years ago, and I've read it twice before. Uh, and, and I'm surprised at all the stuff that's jumping out at me, and I'm thinking, now I know where I got those thoughts <laughs> from, from Nellis. Uh, I mean, almost word for word. And, and, and I haven't looked at the book in 10 years. So it's been sitting in there, and Scripture does the same thing. It implants those ideas. So St. Augustine said this is the way we start. One, we read the Scriptures for the overall feeling. So, for example, read the whole book so you know where the books are and what's in there. I remember doing a Bible study once, and my dear father came, and he didn't have a clue where the books were. And so every time I'd say, turn to, say, Hosea 5, he'd turn to the table of contents. 
And I noticed that there were a lot of other people doing the same thing. Well, if you've done Bible studies, after a while, you know where the books are. So you don't have to turn to the table of contents. Well, that's the first thing that needs to be learned. Learn the fundamentals. So that needs to be a person's first exposure. So that's what we do. Secondly, then do specific studies, like then read for some content, like you want to read for stuff that you missed uh, the first time around. So then you, then you go into that and start looking with a closer eye. And then he said, and he said, leave out all the stuff that you don't understand. Don't bog down. It's the same thing I tell people when they do the self-examination. You go through the self-examination, you list the things that tell you what sins you committed, and don't bog down about whether something else that you don't understand is a sin. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't believe that. By golly, I'm not going to accept this whole thing. Well, we, that defeats the whole purpose. Just deal with what speaks to you. So the second thing is to go through the scriptures, start going back through learning more, gaining more. So you, you had some insights, and so as you've gone back through it, uh, even some insights into the way you're perceiving things, and that comes out. And then the third one is then go back, then go back and look for the deep stuff. Then go back and look for the deep stuff. So the first place they start See, here's the irony of it is. This is not the sole authority, and yet not as it is, and yet it is. And we start here. This is where we start to learn the apostolic tradition, but we learn it the church's way, not our way, because our way will most likely be wrong. And we want to encounter God, not just have knowledge of a book. Yes? Reading it is not enough. It's reading it in the context of a relationship with the pastor, like a, a priest, a father, a confessor, someone, or just someone who is acquainted with the apostolic tradition. Yeah. Can speak just to come to the my interpretation and be like, nope, that's not right. You've actually got to. You, you just get in the church and it'll take care of that. Right. Get in the church and it'll take care of that. Liturgy, remember I told you, liturgy is part of the tradition. That liturgy says more. I heard, read a story somewhere that when, when the communists tried to suppress Christianity in Russia, the Orthodox just doubled the, the, the things they did in the liturgy. They couldn't preach. They couldn't teach Sunday school. So they just did the liturgy, and they just doubled it because it said everything. You know, that's what I like about the Western Rite offices, that they're, they're scriptural in their orientation, you know. I mentioned you, the John Merrick and the, 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 the elephant man with a BCP on his thing. That's the tradition. <laughs> every, one, every one of us that comes out of Protestantism, like myself, here I am right there with you at times. There are times where I'm reading the scripture and I remember my Protestant upbringing and my teaching. I will check it with the tradition. And if anybody, and that's where, like Jonathan was saying, one of your resources when you hit those things is, is bring me up. Let's find some good tradition to get into you to help you come out of what you were thinking before and give you the right goggles to see that now. So absolutely. I had two questions. So <laughs> what is Mariology? Oh. Uh, what we say about Mary in her place in the church. 
And so um, my next question was, how do you learn what what the church's teachings are? Is it just by coming to church or study? Being here and study are part of the rule, basic rule of life for every Orthodox Christian. So as we do all these things together, and, and there are all kinds of, you know, there are all kinds of... There's some other place where... Yeah, books, books on the spiritual life. You can get books like I, I talk to you constantly about St. Sophroni, uh, of the Athenite, and Father Zacharias, and Vladimir Lasky. Uh, I'm, I'm big on them, they're, they're, but there's... You know, Vladimir Lasky's a little deep for the ordinary person, but the others aren't. Uh, all of them are. <laughs> John of Kronstadt, you know, come on, come on. <laughs> but there, there are all kinds of things out there. Say, like, for example, uh, Ancient Faith Radio has a bookstore, and they have a lot of books in there that, that are written for all of us. Plus, there are all kinds of audio things now. I know some people, I had a lady in my church years ago, and she said, Father, I can't read that stuff because I'm not a reader. Well, that was before all the audio stuff came out. You know, now I can say, well, I've got news for you. You can turn it on in the car when you're driving and around the Metroplex. Everybody's driving at least 20 minutes, and so there's 20 minutes of ear time. So, and we, and can, we have a wealth of resources, right? Our, yeah. our library got some good stuff. wonderful for our 2,000 years of tradition and finding what you're looking for and get some help. And when you read something, if you don't understand it, you just press through. Don't, it's like the confession. Don't bog down in what you don't understand. Don't waste time with it. Just read it through and see if you glean. Sometimes I've found that I read books, oh, this is terrible. Uh, but I, I've learned, I've learned, I used to quit. As soon as I hit that point, I'd stop. And I've learned to just push on through to the end. And sometimes after I do, months later, ah, now I understand. So I, I told you that when Bishop Basil had me, your grace, forgive me, I love this story. Uh, he had me read a book because he wanted me to comment. He heard that I'd studied Judaism many years ago, and he wanted to comment on, me to comment on this book. And I read it through in obedience, and I didn't like the book. So I, I wrote him an email and told him everything was wrong with the book. And then I'm not electronically... Uh, predisposed, so I deleted the whole thing when I went to send it to him. Now, don't ask me how I did that. I tried to find it in my computer, couldn't find it anywhere. It was gone. I had an expert come in and look, and he couldn't find it either. I don't know what I did. Must, must have been from God. Yeah, that's right. that's right. So anyway, I went to bed that night with that on my mind. I thought, it's too late. I'm tired. I can't write it again. I'm going to bed. So I went to bed, and I dreamed about the book all night. And all the stuff I'd studied years ago came together, and I had an entirely different attitude in the morning when the book when I got up. So when I when I finally reported to the bishop, he promptly ordered five more books by the same scholar and gave me the order to read them all. <laughs> so anyway, that's how you do it. You just start. You just start. You start, and don't be overwhelmed by what you don't know. We don't. We're talking about eternity, folks. Not one of us here knows anything. So you're in good company. <laughs> the idea is to get on the journey. Get on the pathway. Start. And don't let the devil keep you from doing it. What? Yes, ma'am. You know, when we first came to the church, I, mean, I, I wasn't church, so I did not believe in read the Bible. So, but just during the morning and the evening uh, lessons, I mean, we were solid in all of that. <laughs> 
in the footnotes in the study Bible, we've all got a book about study Bible, and just reading the footnotes begins to teach you. Yeah. That's why it's a part of the rule. Of, that's why it's part of the rule of life. as good as any other. You just start. You just start. And you know, it's sort of like having a good... It's like having a good marriage. You don't compare your marriage to anybody else's... <laughs> You just your yours is what you have, and you make the best of it, and try to make it godly and holy. So, the same we can't compare ourselves as we learn all this stuff. We can't compare ourselves with others. There will be others who know more than we do, and and, and know others who know less. And we just have to keep at it. Yeah. But jump in the water. But jump in, yeah. Yes, I'm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Job is prayer. Job is prayer, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't know if there was progress. What was the clearing? Yeah, it's called, I don't don't remember now. I don't. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Google the prayer of Job is, you'll find it. Yeah, it'll be on there. Yeah, that's right. That's another good thing about the internet. Next time you'll see it a little more profoundly. Yes. See? But I never would have thought, as a Protestant, I never would have understood that that whole problem that I was feeling was because we weren't doing the liturgy. I never would have thought. See, we're a very healing, broken record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next time we'll talk about Mariology. <laughs>